0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of Film Seizure at the Movies. I'm Jeff Arbuckle, co-host of the Film Seizure podcast that you can catch each Wednesday morning with my cohorts, Jason Oliver and Chuck Moore, and my solo show, Monster Mondays, that you can hear every Monday afternoon. Both of those shows can be found at FilmSeizure.com, as well as a number of podcast providers online. This time around, I'm going to primarily discuss the Halloween trilogy from director David Gordon Green and this final installment, Halloween Ends. I do have a trio of other movies to comment on briefly at the end of this episode, but uh, we'll get back around to that in a bit. Also, this is just my opinion this time around. Back in 2018, Jason and I did cover the 2018 Halloween for an episode of Film Seizure. Then, last year, I was joined by both my Film Seizure co-hosts, Jason and Chuck, for a discussion around Halloween Kills. And due to time constraints and scheduling and whatnot, uh, they are not able to join me for this episode. But, Let's go back to 2018. David Gordon Green's Halloween was a little divisive, but only sort of. Um, It can never be understated that the Internet is an extremely cynical place and a place where people are all too happy to say some of the most obtuse things possible. Um, there were people who immediately disliked that new Halloween film, which I find interesting because it did something I felt was extremely uncommon for a Halloween movie. It didn't just clear, you know, it didn't just clear up a series that has an incredibly convoluted continuity that found the series go through one retcon 20 years before the release of of green's new sequel. But then the franchise got a remake only for it to go back and do another retcon. Um, I don't even need to bring up Halloween three because that's an entirely separate thing from the Michael Myers continuity. It's a mess, but it helped clear out continuity and kind of bring the series back to its basics. And you don't have a mindless slasher plot here. Uh, You had a guy who is just mentally deranged and has a penchant for murder. You don't have the whole Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie is Michael's surprise baby sister angle. It just goes back to that terror of that previously mentioned deranged dude. And with it going back to basics, you have this Interesting cycle of obsession and trauma. Both Michael and Lori are obsessed. They both have inflicted trauma while Lori is also trying to deal with the trauma that she had thrust upon her in 1978. It makes the story personal. You have two characters who are completely and totally locked in that past, Uh, but Lori's life can continued where she had a daughter and now has a granddaughter and her experience has touched them through her Um, it made for this smaller story that wasn't just entirely hinging upon michael hiding in shadows and killing kids who dared to have sex or smoke pot or oh no he has a niece that he now has to be obsessed with killing and he's controlled by a cult or whatever the hell was going on in that sixth installment But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is that the strength of Halloween 2018 was that examination of what happened after Halloween 1978 ended, and it focused mostly on the two characters. How did Laurie heal or not heal from the trauma uh, and this kind of passed on obsession with the oddity that is this soulless killer in Michael? That was uh, represented by his new doctor, who was kind of the understudy of Dr. Loomis, played originally by Donald Pleasance. But then came Halloween Kills. Not only was this kind of that mindlessly brutal slasher movie that the franchise turned into in the 80s and 90s, but it was almost devoid of any kind of deeper thought. If you listen to our stuff... Uh, You know that I was kind of incensed by Halloween Kills. They expanded the obsession of what happened on Halloween night, 1978 to other legacy characters that are absolutely trapped and sinking under the weight of their hatred. They become an absolute joke. Why having Lori deal with her trauma by becoming this kind of hardened cuckoo is so good is that she was the one who was attacked. She was the survivor. She can have survivor's guilt. She can have her own obsession of making sure this never happens to her again. And through that, it can ruin her and her family's lives. But then you have these other characters who are trying to make this story theirs. And yes, I know it can't be, you know, I can't be the trauma police and try to dole out who should feel what about a traumatic experience. But you have Tommy and Lindsay, the two kids being babysat in the first movie, along with Lonnie, another kid from the original movie, and the nurse who was only seen in the first movie up to the point that her and Loomis discover that Michael Myers had escaped the sanitarium they are in this bar and they're telling their story about how three people died 40 years ago. And it's just stupid. It's only there for us as the audience to hear their tale. Again, there's no characterization here that tells me that if any of these locals in Haddonfield knew these people, the entire interaction wouldn't be about how Tommy and Lindsay had to run out of the house after Michael Myers attacked to help, Uh, To get help or how Lonnie was scared off the front porch of the old Myers place by Loomis or that nurse lady was scared when uh, when Michael commandeered her and Loomis's car. They are so paper thin as characters, with the exception of Lonnie, who does become kind of an interesting character along the way. But the others are nearly pointless. They're only there for us to say, oh, yeah, I remember those characters. Aren't those characters kind of special to the original movie? Mm, sort of. But I didn't have that kind of feeling towards them. They aren't the people who are in direct danger. Lori was. She's the important one. And that's it. But in fact, that they are so pointless that they are slaughtered with only Lindsay surviving the night. Actually, thanks to Tommy's stupid evil dies tonight chant, most of the town's capable men are slaughtered. I haven't even brought up the pair of African-American characters that I felt was bordering on uncomfortable cartoonish caricatures. So I ended up calling that my you know the worst movie of last year and it wasn't so much that it was the worst movie i was just the most disappointed in it because the first movie had kind of built this interesting idea this idea of trauma and the cycle of obsession and trauma and the second movie just decided to just throw all of that out the window and just be this brutal killing spree But as you move through Halloween Kills, you began to understand that this movie wasn't supposed to be made. From what I understood at the time, it was supposed to just be two movies, Halloween 2018 and a sequel to wrap up everything by basically making a trilogy with the very first 1978 movie. But with the success of Halloween 2018, the decision to expand into a three movie story was made and Halloween Kills certainly felt like a filler movie to bridge what was Uh, to what will be it was mostly devoid of all the neat ideas that the first movie had and so here we are the conclusion Halloween ends I feel like the ends part of the title is uh, kind of like a subtitle like the final chapter or the final Friday or the final nightmare I have a feeling it ain't gonna be the end but I digress so where do I stand With Halloween Ends, I will say it's better than Halloween Kills. I feel like this movie is kind of returning to the roots of the first of this trilogy. Um, It's trying to say something about that rot of obsession and trauma. The movie starts with a cold opening that begins one year after the conclusion of Halloween Kills. Michael Myers slaughtered a large number of people, including Laurie Strode's daughter Karen, and just disappeared. The cold open serves as a little bit of a misdirect that plays into a larger idea of how the town handled the la- the latest rampage of Michael Myers and how sometimes when one boogeyman can't be defeated, the town will shift their anger and fright to another target. And without giving too much away, that's where the movie sets its tone. It actually, for at least the first, oh, 45 minutes or so, shifts all of its focus away from Michael Myers and onto how Haddonfield's attitude had become mired in this terrible aura created by the specter of that killer who returned after 40 years to terrify everyone. This is not going to be good for too many viewers who either want to see a direct continuation from Halloween Kills and the bloodshed of that finale or they want to see something more traditional in horror like Halloween 2018 had seeing how Lori and her granddaughter, Allison have sort of put the pieces of their lives back in order, though it's clear that there's more, uh, it's more like a house of cards, like configuration um, that, you know, that does have that feel that I described in the first chapter of this trilogy had, It is kind of trying to return to something interesting that Halloween 2018 had. But what I like is how this town of Haddonfield is kind of cursed, but not in a supernatural way. One person's psychotic rampage has made it so this town is constantly looking to inflict brutality on people who are either not normal or not what is considered sane or you know, whatever, or how they're constantly looking for someone to point to and say, that guy is the psycho and he needs to be brought down and so forth. Again, it's exploring trauma and obsession. While there are some things that return in this movie from the previous, like how, yes, Allison's parents are both dead, or how the most brutal of attacks in the previous film, the older couple of that, uh, you know, left the husband dead, and the wife confined to a wheelchair. And of course, because she was stabbed through the throat by Michael Myers, she no longer has a voice. Um, You know, that lady and uh, either her nurse or daughter or something confronts Laurie Strode, who's kind of trying to put on this brave face of moving on and healing while others in town blame her for almost allowing Michael to continue to exist. Um, That's a, that's kind of a interesting scene. You don't typically see, how survivors are confronted in a non-heroic way um sometimes you do have somebody who in one person's eyes is a strong survivor type but in another person's eyes led to something that hurt their family or or you know caused them pain it is really interesting um there's also even a little bit of a play about misunderstanding the real story of how the entire thing began 40 plus years ago. It's done in this very brief, almost offhanded comment, but a character believes that Michael's whole rampage beca- began because Lori teased him until he just went nuts with it and decided to kill a bunch of people. It's a offhanded thing. It's kind of almost played as a joke, but it's, actually really interesting about how the story has kind of turned into this whole other mythological thing. Now all that is to say that there are ideas here that are interesting and feel canonically connected to Halloween 2018. The problem is that it really makes Halloween Kills stand out as being completely unnecessary. While still exploring concepts and ideas that are interesting, it also has a larger problem that the way those ideas play out, where a large portion of this movie does not really have anything to do with Michael Myers, The Killer... Uh, When we start dealing more with Laurie and Allison and this new character named Corey, you start to question how we got from point A in 2018 to point B in 2022. It also starts to portray Allison in a very different light that I found to be inconsistent of what her character and her character strength in the previous entries were set up to show about her. I would buy the shift in how she is almost dominated by this new character. If they could do just a little bit more legwork to explain her trauma in all these ordeals that she's experienced. Instead, it focuses entirely on Lori. So in the end, Halloween ends is a mixed bag. There are elements here that are good and interesting with Jamie Lee Curtis, Andy Matashak and uh, Rowan Campbell, all incredibly watchable. The problems mount a little against it in terms of this not feeling like it exists in the same universe as the previous entries at all. There's a complete shift away from Michael Myers to the point that you feel like uh, expanding into a trilogy makes this final entry not strong enough to stand on one idea and one plot so that they had to have competing plots. And then there's this giggle-inducing big final moment of unity for the town of Haddonfield that still makes me question if this movie's characters are only acting and thinking in a certain way because of how we, the viewers, perceive this franchise, or if this would have had any remote possibility of being how real people would act when we finally come to the end of this kind of collective nightmare in this town. So I realize I just spent a lot of words and a lot of minutes to only basically to say that Halloween ends as a near miss. It's a marginal downvote for me, despite having a marked improvement over the previous entry. So now uh, let's do a quick rundown of a trio of other movies I recently watched too and, give me, and, and allow me to give some thoughts on it. First up, the clear winner of this month so far for me uh, is Marvel Studios' special presentation on Disney Plus called Werewolf by Night. This 55-minute special is from director uh, Michael Giacchino, uh, the musician who composed the beautiful score for The Batman earlier this year. Um, He specifically set out to make this look like a 40s universal classic monster movie, and right away I was captivated by it. I mean, I do a show called Monster Mondays. Of course, I'm captivated by it. Um, What's more is that this is an incredibly smart idea for Marvel to try out. The story of Jack Russell, yes, the werewolf by night, is named in the comics for a breed of dog, and it's a wonderful little joke. But this isn't a character who really needs a two plus hour movie made for him he doesn't need a six to nine episode series Um, he's a character that can do some bigger things but he doesn't need a lot of time to explain what he is and touch upon the darker more mystical side of the marvel universe that is kind of coming out to To be something that I would say like with Moon Knight and with this, this is just under the surface of the lighter side of the mystical stuff that we see in Doctor Strange. This is a simple story that does a lot with its runtime. We're introduced to a series of characters who are monster hunters. They're brought to the wake for a famed monster hunter, Ulysses Bloodstone. They're going to hunt a monster and potentially each other in the hopes to inherit Uh, This mystical Bloodstone artifact that will, I guess, make them the top monster hunter in the world. The creature they are hunting, well, it's the monster who feeds on people's fears, the Man-Thing. However, Jack Russell is a friend of Ted, the aforementioned Man-Thing, and he also makes friends with Bloodstone's estranged daughter, Elsa, who is there to basically claim what she thinks is rightfully hers by relation. What no one realizes except for Jack and the hunted man thing, a werewolf walks among them. It's a thrilling hour of TV, and the black and white photography is gorgeous. Um, Even when it does transition to color for the final few minutes, it's still a good-looking piece of entertainment. And what's more is that I think Marvel can do so much with this format. They can produce these uh, specials and quick one-hitters to expand the universe and introduce more characters. Eventually, I do suspect Jack, Ted, and Elsa will end up in some sort of uh, collective story uh, that does tie back to the monster side of Marvel. Now, another spooky October release that released the same day as Werewolf by Night on another Disney property, Hulu, was the highly anticipated Hellraiser reboot-slash-sequel. I'm not sure if this is a reboot or a continuation of the Hellraiser series from maybe after the third film or so. Either way, there's a ton of style here to like. The visual concepts behind these new Cenobites are great. They are spooky again with them kind of mostly hanging back and waiting for their time to approach a victim. It makes for some great visuals where you see stuff in the forefront and then back in the background, there's a Cenobite just kind of hanging out back there. Um, our leads in this movie, Odessa Azion as Riley and Jamie Clayton as our new Pinhead, spookily credited credited simply as just the priest. Well, they're both great. They are compelling characters and creatures that have a fantastic finishing scene together that puts a whole new, never seen before in the films, angle on our main MacGuffin, the box and its quote unquote lament configuration. A lot of the spooks and scares of this movie revolves around mind-bending stuff, which I think is very Clive Barker in style and concept. There are interesting character relationships and beats, particularly within Riley, that make for some interesting and compelling reasons to keep watching. However... There are some problems in the movie itself. First, it's way too long. Uh, It comes in at 121 minutes, and it really shouldn't be more than maybe 100 or 105 minutes tops. It's a little too big. It lacks in visual gore, except for one character who has this thing rammed through his chest that twists and plays with the sinews and nerves. That made me wince a little bit. The Cenobites are interesting, and... um, as I kind of mentioned, I like that sometimes they just kind of hang back and wait for their moments, but they aren't particularly threatening. Um, the problem still exists that after Hellraiser 3, it still feels like this is something else that became a Hellraiser movie by inter- by introducing the box and the Cenobites. So a marginal recommendation for me for fans of Hellraiser who've been waiting a long time to actually see a Hellraiser movie but it's imperfect, and to maybe quote something that Pinhead might say, not quite as ex- as exquisite an exercise in the human experience of pain and pleasure as some fans might desire. Finally, I also saw a movie this month that, going in, I thought might be a serious contender for Oscars coming you know come this upcoming spring, but maybe falls a little short, and that's David O. Russell's Amsterdam. I want to start off by saying that this film centers on a kind of romanticized version of the real life conspiracy known as the business plot, which was alleged attempt by powerful businessmen to overthrow FDR's presidency to create a fascist regime in the United States. It's perfectly understandable why this movie might exist in today's climate, all things considered. But what I found most interesting and incredibly watchable was everything the characters played by Christian Bale, John David Washington, and Margot Robbie and what they were doing. This is an interesting type of movie. There's a conspiracy plot that is kind of easy to figure out. There's a story that is vaguely interesting, but the reality of it lands a little late for those who don't really know the alleged plot details going in. There's an almost Agatha Christie feel to the mystery that bounces you from one place to another. There's an old timey light comedy feel to it. However, as appealing as all of those things are, none of them touch our main characters and how that extends to the other characters that they interact with. It's a peculiar movie because I was utterly entertained by the movie, but what struck me or what stuck with me the most are those three main characters and those three main actors performances i want to be friends with them i want to go to post world war one amsterdam and bomb around with them and feel the freedom of those adventures the movie romances you with these ideas and these characters however i also have to realize that it's playing with my emotions in that way so Uh, This is one of those movies that the characters and performances are fantastic and endlessly watchable, but the details of the plot itself become such a distant aspect of the movie. Uh, It's only a movie that exists for the performances and the characters, so it's this weird mixed bag. Still, if you watch the trailer and think the um, characters are going to be kind of fun to watch, then you'll probably like it. If you go to see it and expect the sprawling and engrossing plot, you'll probably be disappointed. Still, between Bale, Washington, and Robbie, I feel like this movie, um, and I did like this movie, and I did feel like it was something worth watching, so I will give this another marginal recommend with an asterisk that it's the characters that are most interesting and compelling. Don't forget to follow Film Seizure at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so that you can be made aware of new episodes of our various shows as they drop. You can also follow us at podcast providers like SoundCloud, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audible. You can also listen to the show on YouTube by subscribing there. Stay tuned for new episodes of our shows, and I'll be back at some point in November with another edition of Film Seizure at the Movies. So until then, don't forget to save me the aisle seat.